The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. We live in the age of information, and that's supposed to be a good thing. Thanks to the internet, we have anything we want at our fingertips. We're ostensibly capable of accomplishing so much more. But the day-to-day reality of this way of living is tough. Everything takes longer. I need to join a gym right now, for example. So am I gonna march down to the one in the lobby in my building? Or am I going to do several hours of internet research, make a spreadsheet, post on social, collect some opinions, compare prices, look at lists of classes and their timing, and then make a decision? Of course, I will do this over a couple of weeks, and by the time I'm ready to commit, I won't be able to find where I put that spreadsheet or remember what I called it. Also, that decision will probably be just to join the gym in the lobby of my building, even after all that effort. I'm just going to say that more choice, more access to information, it isn't always freedom. Sometimes it's a curse. That's why we all need a second brain. Last summer, Tiago Forte joined us to share his dead simple approach to taking control of information before it takes control of all of us. Tiago is the head of Forte Labs, and the book he published last summer is called Building a Second Brain. If you haven't listened to our earlier episode with Tiago, you might want to pause here and go listen to it right now. It's in the show notes. Now, you don't need to in order to get a lot out of today's conversation, but you may want to. Tiago introduced a system that I put into practice immediately. It has replaced my to-do list, and a year later, I still reliably use it. Has it solved every organizational issue I've ever had? No, of course not. But it's really up-leveled my ability to stay on top of things. Now Tiago has published a companion book, a tiny how-to called The Para Method. If last year's book offered a holistic approach to information management, this one is designed to make you sharper, fast. Para stands for Project, Area, Resource, Archives. The four categories for every single thing you come across. It's a system for organizing your digital life, and thus your life, in minutes. That works well enough that I'm still using it. Play with it a little and you'll start to have questions, of course. Today's episode will answer a lot of those questions. Here's Tiago. A lot of times people think, oh, a second brain and getting organized. I'm going to like become this new person. I'm going to usher in this whole new stage of life. I'm going to transform my identity. Maybe, (laughs) but probably not. Probably this is just going to be an incremental change that makes things 10, 20, 30% better, which is already a huge accomplishment. So what I would say is look at what you're already using. You are managing information every day. You are turning inputs into outputs every day. So it's it's not that you're waiting to do this. You are doing it. The only question is how effectively and, you know, what the results are. So I would say, you know, when you open up your computer, what do you open up? Is it browser tabs? You can, you can completely organize your, uh, your bookmarks, your favorites in your browser using Para. 
Is it your documents folder or your file system on your computer? You can use Para there. Is it Google Drive or another cloud storage solution? Implement Para there. Is it the Notes app on your phone? Implement Para there. I mean, I've seen people organize their calendars using Para, their finances, their uh, text messages. There is not a platform that I have encountered that cannot be organized this way. So I would just start, start at your primary use case that is already alive and active right now. Okay, so walk us through the 60-second setup guide for Para. Of course. See, really even, it'll take me 60 seconds to explain, but it will take even less time to implement. Mm -hmm. Let me save you days, weeks, months of effort. The first thing you want to do is archive everything. Don't try to go through item by item and individually decide where it goes and what it belongs to. That is way too taxing and time consuming. Mm -hmm. Just create a folder or whatever the container is called on your platform, put the date on it. So archive and today's date, and then dump every single file that is in that location. And I don't care if it's hundreds, thousands. I've seen people do this with tens of thousands of documents. Huh. Just select all and dump them all into that archive. Think of it like a time capsule for everything that was going on in your life on this date in, in time. Uh-huh. And then the second, there's really just two steps. The second step is to so start So you're giving over. us a, you're, you're giving us a clean start here. It's, yes. It's like you're, you're so blessing important. us. That is so important. You can't create anything new, which is the second step until you have a blank slate. And what you're creating is your projects. Everyone has projects. Almost anything can be a project. It's just something you're trying to accomplish. To me, that is the unit of organization that is actually important. Right. Okay. Is what are you trying to do, accomplish, achieve? What outcome are you trying to produce? It could be a promotion at work. It could be a family vacation. It could be a bathroom remodel. It could be a piece of writing, personal or professional, doesn't matter. And then just create one folder for each of those projects. Anytime you come across a piece of information that, that is related to or relevant to one of those projects, you know exactly where to drop it. As you're doing this, like, how does this live alongside or replace, like, the to-do list? And I should back up by just, I began implementing Para last summer. And today, it has turned into a running to-do list in Keep. Same software. It just, it slowly devolved over time and now is just a to-do list, which is, by the way, not your system any longer. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting question. So I think Para kind of disrupts the idea of a to-do list, it's a little bit of a challenge to that concept. And here's why. Like, think of the traditional to-do list. I always think of like a post-it note on the corner of your desk or a legal pad on the side of your desk where you just have maybe numbers or maybe little boxes with the items that you want to do today or this week or soon or whatever that you just check off. And I think that that idea, as timeless and, and eternal as it is, is also becoming less relevant. I think mostly because the world is just getting so much less certain, things are changing so much faster at all levels, that the idea that you can just make a little to-do list and then just go one, two, three, four, by the time you get a few items down, probably the whole environment, the whole landscape of your priorities has probably changed. Yep. <laughs> right? <laughs> Not to mention the fact that there's so much incoming communication, so many things happening that even getting to the end of that to-do list would be, would be quite an accomplishment. And so my, my response to this new era that we live in is to really go up a level from the level of tasks to the level of projects. 
there's still tasks there. There still are to-dos that you will have to complete, but it's a matter of perspective. It's really a matter of what time horizon do you think on? Tasks are like the next few minutes to next few hours. To me, that's now too short. You actually have to elevate your perspective and think more like days to weeks ahead of time. Yeah, um, I like that. It it helps with the fact that like number four on my to-do list currently is plan winter vacation. And number five is call the doctor back. They don't belong in the same list, those two tasks. That's another great point, right? Is is there's for each project that you take on, and I find that most people have around 10 to 15 projects at any given time. Each one is a is a whole mindset. You know, it's like a whole attitude. It's a bunch of contextual details. It's a almost like this persona that you take on to do that project. So one problem with the to-do list is the context switches are so extreme. You're trying to go from one context to one completely different context to another context, which is kind of like whiplash. You just feel whiplashed all over the place. For me, it's, it's much more effective to say, for the next hour or two hours, I'm going to work on this project, put myself completely in that mindset and that environment, have only the information related to that project in front of me. That's why you want your project folders. And then to just make progress on that one project for as long as I have or as long as the energy holds up, rather than constantly fragmenting my attention, switching from one thing to another. Mm -hmm. Where do we go from projects? It's funny. In the past, I would have people, you know, sit there for hours and really think of what are all your projects, all your areas, all your resources. But these days, I kind of think that's unnecessary. The only one of those four letters that is truly essential is the P, is which projects are you trying to move forward right now? Once you have those, I would say just go for it. If there is an area or resource that you actually need, okay, that you need to move forward a project, do that too. But often people start going deeper and deeper into the weeds when really they know the project that is first priority. Yeah. Um, I'm curious where people routinely get stuck when they're implementing this. Yeah, there's a few places they get stuck. So one is what I just said. They think, okay, I'm going to perfectly organize. This is the perfectionistic mindset, yes. which a lot of you know dedicated professionals have this attitude is, I have to organize everything perfectly. Every last note, file, bookmark, piece of data is critically important for me to organize before I take even one step. That is a recipe for getting bogged down forever. If you're organizing your house, you can actually reach, you can actually reach the end. You can clean your whole house and put away everything. In the digital world, you can't. It's yeah. literally infinite. There's just gigabytes upon terabytes, infinite amounts of data. You could spend the rest of your life organizing and never get to the, the end of it. And so you have to sort of create for yourself an artificial endpoint, an artificial yeah. constraint. Otherwise, we're just never going to see you again. <laughs> what are other things that come up for people as they're trying to implement this? Yes. So perfectionism is probably first. I think the second one is the feeling of sitting down and just saying, what are my projects currently is surprisingly confronting, mm. right? It's confronting yeah. because it's almost like I'm just asking you, uh, what are you trying to do? What are you committed to? What are you promising? You know, promising whether your colleagues or your boss or your company or some external client, what are you putting your name to? You're putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is a project. Here's the outcome, the goal that it's trying to achieve. This is the deadline, right? It's very confronting. I mean, people have commitment issues, right? Yeah. Um, but this is why it's so valuable. Yeah. It's so valuable if you can push through that resistance 
to make this project list. And I'll tell you why, because the very next thing I'm going to ask you to do is to prioritize it. Once you have your 10 to 15 projects, I'm going to say, great, put them in order from most important to least important. And sometimes I put in the, the caveat just this week, because sometimes people think, oh, well, some are long-term, some are short-term, some are yeah, urgent, totally. some are important, just for the next five days, what is most to least important. And then they do, they can do that pretty easily. And then I say, okay, just pay attention to the top three and ignore all the rest this week. And that's when the doors open, the windows open. It's like, hallelujah, because they realize that their limited amount of attention, instead of having to spread it out evenly over 15 different projects, which is impossible, right? really in any given week, there's at most two or three projects that matter. Therefore, give them all your attention and ignore everything else at least until next week. Um, I'm trying to think about whether I feel like I could even psychologically do that. <laughs> I mean, I think I probably could if an external source, like, for example, you as a coach were giving me permission. But the truth is, I feel like those projects, they all crowd together and insist that they all matter all the time. It's part of the tyranny of information. It feels that way, doesn't it? And, and I think yeah. this is where that sense of information overload and overwhelm, I think, truly comes from. It doesn't actually come from the volume of information, right? Because um, I think David Allen uses this, uh, this example of when you walk in the forest, you know, you walk in a peaceful national park, the amount of information coming in, sights, sounds, smells, touch, is utterly exponential. And yet you don't feel overwhelmed. You feel peaceful. Yeah. Right. Because you're not trying to pay full attention and, and attend to every single rock and tree and squirrel. And so I think a lot of what makes information overwhelming is just that we can't distinguish the usually very small percentage, like one percent that actually matters right now in this moment from the 99 percent that doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Then. OK. So. You hit the point where you can prioritize and sort of identify three projects to work on. I feel like there are a lot of projects that I work on that never come to a sense of completion. You know, you use the metaphor of cleaning one's house and you clean one's house and you get to the end of cleaning the house eventually. But that's not how digital information works for me. So how do you create completion? Yeah, totally. That's To me, that is what a project is. It's completely artificial. It's made up, right? There's no projects out in nature. Every project is an invention of the human mind. You are creating these fake artificial things called projects for your own psychological benefit. Practically the only reason, the main reason to do it is just so that you actually reach that sense of completion. Even if it's just your own internal definition of what completion means, because then you get that sense of victory. You get that sense of accomplishment, which I think you're right. We're totally starving for. When I'm out there coaching people, people are starving for a sense of completion, of finality in something, right? Sometimes people go years never reaching any conclusion. That is, that is toxic for the human brain, I think. You need some sort of finished, finish line, some milestone to say, I did it. I, I won. I was victorious. I did what I said I would do. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, Tiago offers more tips for managing information overload. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days. 
all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. It's kind of funny to be talking to Tiago at almost the same time as last year because we're both up against the same challenge we had in common last year. And that has everything to do with information and how we manage it today. Yes, I'm talking about swim lessons. Last summer, Tiago and I were both putting our own children into swim lessons. And when we spoke this year, we were each involved in doing it again. And the process has grown so complicated because there are just more options than there were when we were growing up. When I was a kid in the early 80s, this was such a simple process. There was one town pool. My parents called up the folks there and asked when lessons were and signed me up. Today, there are so many available options that when I tried to do this for my own kids, it required spreadsheets, plural. I had to get Tiago's advice here. When is this kind of information processing useful, and when is it just overkill? I love this example because we're, we're dealing with the, uh, to, to underline your point, we're, we're in the midst of the complexity of swim lesson booking again this summer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it is true first that our lives are just more informationally intense. We just have more information. We have more options, more choices, more criteria. We're more demanding in a lot of areas. We have higher standards. We know what the possibilities are now. And once you know all the different options, it's very hard to ignore them, right? Yep. So I think some of that is just necessary. Like you're just not going to live, you know, the simple idyllic life. For me, when I was growing up, it was mid-1980s, you know, a, a suburban lifestyle. That's part of the equation. But the other equation is I think we really need to become good at satisficing. That's kind of what you're talking about. I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I haven't heard that word before. Oh, I yeah. like it. Oh, totally. So this, this is, this has been a huge one for me. It's discussed in kind of like pop psychology books. It's from the paradox of choice. Mm. Uh, I think Greg Easterly, which was one of the first sort of self-help books that I ever read. I think I was in college at the time. And the message of the book, which I still remember, is simply that when you're facing a choice and you consider too many options, you try to decide among too many options, two things happen. You expend tremendous amounts of time and energy trying to make the choice, which we know, but also you're less satisfied with whatever choice you do make. Mm. That's the surprising outcome. Yeah. Even when you do all the research and make the giant spreadsheet with all the criteria, 
or even, I mean, another example is you spend an hour surfing Netflix trying to decide what to watch. You think, oh, I'm gonna be more satisfied with my choice because I'm making it so thoughtfully and intentionally. No, you're gonna be less satisfied because you still have in the back of your mind all the, th- the ones you didn't choose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so satisficing, which used to just be the only option, you know, in, in past years you had to satisfy because there was just one option, like you said. Now we actually have to be good at satisficing. It's like a skill. Right. It's like a skill set. We have to be satisficing ninjas where we actually proactively destroy, eliminate, or disregard most of the options so that we can just make a decision and move on. Yeah. I love that. I'm going to start using that. And yeah, I always feel like another example is um, we're trying to book some time to go away this fall. And I opened up Airbnb and began looking at all the options, all the places we could go, all the types of all everything, right? And then I um, actually was having a, a work meeting with someone who on the way out, I said, have you ever been anywhere good? And she said, yeah, I went to this place and I immediately booked it. And I feel great about it. And it's that's exactly what you're talking about. That's a great strategy. A great way to satisfy yeah. is just to just ask someone you trust. Yeah. You essentially use their past experience as a filter. Just do exactly what they tell you and don't even try to consider all the options. I That's a great strategy. Or, depending on who you are, it can actually be a really dumb strategy. I feel like that's something my parents warned me about doing, not doing as a child. Like, don't listen to everybody else. Make your own decisions. Um, so to go back to your, um, your tiny manual for how we can all implement the PARA method, and to go back to this framework for thinking about projects as the defining system to managing the internal chaos that information causes... You must have heard from so many readers this year. <laughs> well, what surprised you the most about people's reaction? And I, I know and knew that you have a bit of a cult following, I'm going to call it that, among people trying to make sense of information. Um, but then you put a book out into the world. How did that change who found you and what surprised you about that process? So what's fascinating to me about the book in particular is that it reaches a completely different kind of person. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was funny, we got the early copies of the Para Method at the house. My wife, with no prompting from me, was not a request, she opens the box, she picks up the book, she reads the whole thing that day in two or three hours. And she's gonna be mad at me for saying this and, and putting her on the spot, but she actually has never read Building a Second Brain in its entirety. Wow. <laughs> right. So she, she always says that she knows the ideas, yeah. you know, backward and forward because she was part of their development. But I, I watched her read the pair method and I and I thought, oh, interesting. This is a much more accessible, obviously shorter, but also simpler. I mean, every chapter is maybe 500 words. There's these cool illustrations that really make the ideas visual and make them easy to understand. And so I think what's been most surprising is just that any piece of information can be distilled. Right, any message, even if you think it's already simple, can be further simplified and reduced and distilled and compressed down. And I think the Para Method is really that. It's a further distillation to an extreme degree of the message of building a second brain. In the years since I spoke to Tiago, one very big information event transpired. An event that is, even as we speak, changing everything. Last November, ChatGPT became available to anyone. ChatGPT is also a second brain of sorts, a wildly fast pattern-matching tool that can pull from its archives faster than any human, but with varying degrees of success. So will ChatGPT help with the information problem? 
That was my question for Tiago. Totally. Yeah, you know, when ChatGPT and other AI tools first came out, I just thought, oh, well, Para is finished. And I was happy. You know, I, I don't inherently want people to organize things in folders. That is not like my passion in life. I, I want them to do it so that they can get on to the things that actually matter to them. And so when it first came out, I just thought, oh, we're never going to have to do this again. We're freed from organizing anything. We'll just ask the, the chatbot. Yeah. But as the hype has sort of died down a little bit and the, the constraints of these tools have become clear, and I'm a heavy user of ChatGPT specifically, by the way, we've quickly found that you have to supply the context. Mm -hmm. It's not magic. Mm -hmm. It's not supernatural. The, lim the, the, the quality of the answers that you get back is limited by the prompt, by the details that you put in, by the context, by the instructions. Well, where does all that come from? Where does the context come from and the details and the constraints and the guidelines that you are supplying ChatGPT? It comes from Para. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so do you, do you, have you found innovative ways to use ChatGPT in your own work? Oh, so many. I have a couple of blog posts. I was just working on one uh, before getting on this, uh, on this call. So we have a project as a company to bring building a second brain training into companies, into organizations. Uh, it's something we've been thinking about for years, but we, we didn't quite feel ready until we had a self-paced version of our online course, which we just launched uh, last month. So now we're ready, we're gonna do it. So I was writing a essentially a solicitation, uh, a piece of text around a couple pages long that will go in our newsletter, soliciting uh, an organizational you know, manager or executive or L&D person to reach out to us. And there's a section, the most important and challenging section in that document, which is what are the benefits? What are the benefits to doing this training for your organization? And it's like almost like writing a curriculum. You know, you have to write like these are the main five benefits and then indented under each of those. Here are the three to five kind of sub points. It's a kind of thinking that's really hard for me to do. You know, put it into corporate language, see it from their point of view, sort of imagine or predict all their objections and all their worries and fears. And so I just did a brainstorm, dumped it into ChatGPT and said, I am sending this to a, an L&D professional, a corporate executive. Please put it into a format and language and tone and style that they would find appealing. Five seconds later, I have a beautiful outline wow. that I just copy and paste almost directly into my writing. Wow. That is a total game changer. It is a total game changer. It really is. Yeah. It really is. I like the way that you highlight the way that it can live alongside the work that we need to do to organize our own information. Um, and I look forward to having you back next summer when you introduce the Paramethod Haiku, <laughs> a distillation of the current book. I, I have honestly thought about like an actual children's book. Could this message be distilled down to just pictures? with a few lines of text, I kind of think it could be. So maybe I'll see you next summer. <laughs> that was Tiago Forte. You can learn more about his work at fortelabs.com. Tiago's great at making organization feel really easy, achievable, even for someone like me. And let's just say it's not my strong suit. I'm going to take a lot away from today's conversation. First, I'm going to continue to go with the system that already works for me. I don't think there's a better one out there. For me, it's Google Keep. Second, I'm going to start again. I'm going to archive all the stuff I have lying around, and I'm just going to make it fresh. And finally, I'm going to focus on a manageable number of projects. 
forget the to-do lists. I'm gonna identify 10 or 15 things just like he says and try to focus on accomplishing those. And then on any given day, pick three to focus on. Above all else, I'm gonna go easy on myself, right? Because being a perfectionist is, is a waste of energy and doing something a little bit better than I was doing it before is way better than doing nothing perfectly. Okay, I want to hear what you are doing and what you are taking from this episode, so join us for the next Office Hours. We'll go live from the LinkedIn news page at 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. Bring your coffee, bring your lunch, whatever you like. Just join us for a great conversation. And if you're not sure where to find us, send us an email at hellomonday at linkedin.com. We'll send you the link. Before we sign off, time for our book segment with Scott Ulster. Hey, Scott. Hey, great to be here. We're here in the summer, and so I'm just going to guess that means that you've gotten some time to read. Yeah, summer is a wonderful time to just relax and also discover books that you might not otherwise pick up during the normal course of the year. So what's at the top of your reading pile right now? Yeah, uh, one book that I've been excited about is called The Half-Known Life by Pico Ayer. And Pico Ayer is this, he's this incredible travel writer. He has uh, this wonderful reputation for just uh, really getting a sense of places, of new places, and sort of uh, describing them in ways that are just truly gorgeous and insightful. And so I was really excited to see that he put out a new book uh, at the beginning of this year. And uh, like I said, it's called The Half-Known Life, which is a bit of a curious title. Yeah, seriously. What's it about? It's all about discovering and trying to understand many different places in the world that have at one point or another been characterized as paradise on earth. And the thing about paradise on earth is that it's it's a bit tricky because one person's paradise tends to attract other people who want it to be their paradise. And next thing you know, everyone's in Croatia on vacation. <laughs> exactly. That's one scenario. <laughs> the other scenario, the other scenario where it could be places like uh, certain parts of Iran or Jerusalem or Sri Lanka, what happens is everybody wants a piece of paradise. And everybody has an interpretation of what makes uh, paradise a paradise. So he's trying to understand how, how to navigate these kinds of conflicts and also what does it really mean to have a place like this. So is there one big takeaway from this book? Yeah, I mean, what he comes upon is that even though everybody has this, this sense of paradise on earth, the, the truth is, is that no place can actually really hold that mantle. That a lot of what this is, a lot of what the struggle is about, is that humans— all the world over, doesn't matter what faith you have, if you have faith, we tend to get really wrapped up on possessing places, possessing things. And the truth is, is that the key to sort of finding that paradise is more of an inside job than anything else. So what you're saying is that paradise could be in the studio right now. It's on us. It's definitely on us. And in fact, like he has this great anecdote. Uh, one of the very cool things about Pico Ayer is that he's, he's actually spent a lot of time traveling with the Dalai Lama. And he talks about this moment uh, where uh, lots of people, you know, no matter where the Dalai Lama is, when he's giving a talk and he's taking questions, a lot of people say, you know, what about this dream we have, like this huge dream to either achieve peace in, in places of conflict or it could be, you know, coming up with really powerful solutions to things like climate change. And the Dalai Lama has a tendency to interrupt and as nicely because he's a really nice guy, uh, interrupt in his way and say wrong dream. 
And the funny part about it is that, you know, he's, he's got a point, which is that we need to sort of approach the world and approach these big problems as they are and be, in a way, a bit realistic. So maybe that's the, the big thing is not the right dream. Maybe the right dream is something more incremental. Wow, this sounds both like a delightful book and like one that might leave us with something substantive. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, you got it. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer keeps all our information extremely clearly organized. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. How's Ollie doing? Oh, Ollie. Well, he was okay at the park today. Um, no scuffles. But it's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. But he came in like really, really hot. Like the thing right. that Ollie does is as soon as he goes out of the apartment first thing in the morning, he like scans the street for other dogs. And if there's another dog, we're going to have an eruption.